Now, the Jen Charlton Show on 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Telling it like it is with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning and welcome to the show. It's great to have you guys with us. Listen, we're going to jump right in to the recent Arizona hearing where a gentleman by the name of Ivan Ranklin testified and under oath and it's a joint hearing of both our House and Senate in Arizona about the elections. It's important for you to hear everything he has to say because you will not hear this on mainstream media. Yes, Madam Chairwoman. Everybody can hear me fine? Okay, my name is Ivan Raikland. As you mentioned, I'm uh, honored to be here. And my background, just before we jump into the discussion, uh, because we're limited on time, I was going to discuss uh, two topics generally. I'm going to condense those. The first topic is titled, as per the flyer, Foreign and Domestic National Security Threats to America's Constitutional Order and, uh, and Arizona's Electoral System. And I'm also going to touch on briefly uh, the plenary authority that the obviously the state legislature has to be able to move forward so that it can then repel these foreign and domestic adversaries to our constitutional order and the electoral system in Arizona. Okay. A little pull, bit about my background. Yeah, pull the mic a little closer and tell us your legal credentials and your military credentials. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. So a little bit about my background. Uh, last 25 years up until August of 2022, which would have been last year. So for 25 years, I spent uh, most of that time in the national security ecosystem, retired as a lieutenant colonel, Green Beret. Uh, bottom line, I spent uh, quite a bit of that time as an intelligence officer at the tactical operational strategic level, conducting analysis, counterintelligence, human intelligence across uh, deployed numerous uh, continents, countering ISIS, Taliban, MS-13, Russian aggression, uh, as a military attache briefly in the Republic of Georgia, and then in leadership positions as a detachment commander in the special forces uh, deployed to Central and South America, and then as a company commander deployed to the Middle East countering ISIS, as I mentioned. So that's kind of the intelligence credentials that I bring to the table. Again, I'm in my personal capacity here today. And one more thing, just back off about one inch and tell us how many languages you speak and what they are. I'm not sure if it's relevant, but I do speak uh, five languages, uh, four other than English. I uh, had the opportunity, so Russian, Spanish, Arabic, and a little bit of French. And one thing I wanted to note here before I jump into the presentation is the last, I would say, three, three and a half years, uh, other than focusing in, I haven't really mentioned it, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. So when I wasn't on active status, because I was in guard reserves, and uh, active guard and reserve status, during that 25-year period. I picked up a law degree focused on national security law and constitutional law. However, amidst that, the last three and a half years, I was also an adjunct instructor at the Defense Intelligence Agency where I instructed on critical thinking and essentially going through the process, and some, I'll get into that, going to the process of, of conducting a professional analytic assessment on a particular intelligence question, okay? And then in my reserve capacity, I spent the last three years helping stand up what's known as the Army Reserve's 75th Innovation Command in the Silicon Valley and Greater Bay Area, where my portfolio focused in on tech scouting on behalf of the Army, companies that worked on artificial intelligence, mixed reality, gaming technologies to be able to increase our capacity as a national 
in the national security ecosystem to be able to counter threats, particularly coming from the global leaders in AI, China, the Chinese Communist Party, Russia, and then to a lesser degree, some of the European, what most would consider allies. Thank you. Uh, Madam Chair, Mr. Ranklin, really quick on your experience. Um, your, uh, Where'd you go to law school? What kind of law did you practice? What firm or where and for how long? Sure. So I went to Toro Law School on Long Island. And as far as, again, it was part-time role I spent focused on national security. I've done personnel security, helping get folks through the uh, security clearance process to get their uh, security clearance. And then also focused in over the last, I would say the last two and a half years is where I really focused in. And it's mostly in the legislative ecosystem, advising on you know, legal theories and the constitutional order. So for example, I went to, uh, actually last year, I was here speaking with President Karen Fan, advising uh, on, again, the topic that I'm gonna be discussing today, the plenary authority. Worked briefly with Justice Gableman in Wisconsin, uh, communicating with the Speaker of the House there last year and then tangentially also in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Lansing, Michigan briefly, um, but th that's probably the preponderance of the work that I've done as it applies to this issue. Thank you. Proceed. Okay, thank you for that question. And so that's my background, and I wanna focus in on really two components as I go through this. One is you know, what is going on globally and how it impacts elections in the United States, and specifically, obviously, here in Arizona. But this doesn't have to specifically mean only Arizona. This covers the entire country, but I'll give a couple highlights because Arizona is a border state, obviously has an impact. So just to frame the context, the globe, and again, I've had an opportunity to teach a lot of this stuff, but I'm doing this based on research in my own personal capacity off of that status. Just want to be clear. <laughs> so there are 193 countries on the planet, according to the United Nations. Five of those countries are United Nations Permanent Security Council members. So they have a little bit more sway in the global order. The United States being one of them, China obviously being another, the United Kingdom, France, Great Britain. Nothing too fancy. But when the world is kind of competing for global dominance, in this instance, uh, China, you have to break it down and assess who is doing what and what capacity they have based on four categories, which we talk about, which is their reach globally in the diplomatic space, information ecosystem, military, and then the e economic influence. So I argue, again, this is my assessment and I can provide quite a bit of evidence to support it, but in the interest of time, I'll give you the top level and I'll hopefully dig deeper in the Q&A period to be able to back up these assessments. The Chinese Communist Party has essentially been coordinating with Russia and being advised by Russia based on their previous experience to do what's known as ideological subversion of the West. So for those that are not aware, there's a video out there Back in 1984, a gentleman by the name of Yuri Bezmenov, which was a defector from the KGB, and he articulated in detail exactly what the Soviet Union was doing in order to infiltrate our national institutions, all of them, whether it's education, whether it's 
in order to be able to influence things, right? I argue that that model was used over the last probably decade plus to work with China and they have an increased cap capacity and capability to then apply that at scale in the West to include the United States. Okay, so that's the information landscape. Couple that with the ability to scale that in the tech ecosystem with apps like TikTok. Also having leverage over big tech companies and big media players in the United States. So if you're a big company in the United States and you want to do business in and have access to 1.4 billion people market, you're going to have to play by their rules. And some of those rules are you have to do things like create friction in your own country in order to create this chaos so that China can continue to rise. This is my argument. So what else can they do? We talk about diplomacy. They have a seat at the table on the UN Security Council. They have an influence on staffing in the United Nations. We see a lot of these institutions mentioned for those that are following this, whether it's the World Economic Forum, whether it be the WHO. And then we also see the influence that is taking place amongst these big tech and big media actors on, specifically based on the Twitter files releases, of what we were presented over the last two and a half years, I would argue back to 2018, has been manipulated, curated information that is significantly impacting the voter in their decision-making process. And I argue a lot of it is coming from that relationship between these big players, businesses, big tech, big media, to have access to the Chinese marketplace. And they're advised on how to essentially influence, manipulate, based on the attempted model in 2016 of the Russians. There was a lot of information out there in the court of public opinion claiming that Russia was trying to influence and interfere in the U.S. elections. I'm of the stance, why wouldn't they? They're an adversary. If they weren't trying to, that would be anomalous. And then why wouldn't China do the same? But China has more capability. Now, on the military side of things, why wouldn't China try to influence and diminish the capability of our military without firing a single shot? Well, maybe that's what happened via our social media platforms by trying to push for a lot of these emergency use authorized products. I'm not going to go into detail on that. I'm just going to leave it at that. Economically, we've kind of touched upon. Now, for in terms of evidence to support it, I try to use the government's own data. So let's take a look. Many people, if you're just watching the news, whatever side of the aisle, it doesn't matter because the sponsorships matter in determining what content, content is put out, whether it's left or right. But when you look at supposedly the nonpartisan intelligence community assessment on the origins of COVID, what most people don't know is that there were actually two hypotheses to answer the question of what are the origins of COVID. And one of them is that there was a moderate level of confidence with one element of the intelligence community that the first human infection with SARS-CoV-2 most likely was the result of a laboratory-associated incident, probably involving experimentation animal handling, or sampling of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If you were to say that, the DNI's own assessment, what happened to you online? Poof, 
gone. Would you, tr- I don't know about you, but I trust somebody that has a, for example, I'm standing here today. I'm obligated to tell the truth. There are consequences if I don't. If you're watching TV, the people that are speaking on the television, they have no obligation to tell the truth. So then you have to rely on it and wait and rack and stack the evidence that is presented to you. This I would give more weight than anything coming from the television. The reason why I bring this up is it's it's an assessment that impacted the national conversation that ended up being massively partisan and political. And states need to be cognizant of the global what's going on globally to be able to come up with solutions moving forward in the electoral system to protect from this manipulated court of public opinion discussion. Next, I'm going to touch on this briefly because I'm trying to keep this as nonpartisan as possible, and it's difficult because it's a political endeavor to discuss elections. So that's the international component. The other second example I want to use on the international component is, for those that aren't aware, there's an executive order, 13848, and it was passed in 2018. It was executive order under the uh, previous administration. And it talked about how the director of national intelligence is, is obligated within 45 days to give an assessment on whether or not, remember, assessment. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt because we don't just don't know a lot of things. An assessment of whether or not our federal elections were conducted with or without foreign interference. Well, when you start digging deeper and questioning those analysts that provide this information, you get a different picture than what the actual assessment is. The assessment basically says, yeah, there's negligible activity. They talk about a little bit about Russia. They talk a little bit about China to a lesser degree. They talk about Iran and uh, some other non-state actors, Hezbollah, in this discussion. And I'll provide this to you. But when you take a look and see that there was a debate and discussion between the DNI at the time, John Radcliffe, who disagreed with the assessment of the analysts. Remember, he came out with a publication on January 7th of 2021 that basically gave more weight that there was China interference in the election, but the analysts from the Central Intelligence Agency didn't want to include that evidence that supported that assessment. Well, then it begs the next question. Why were they pushing back? And why did they not meet the 45-day window? Well, this is where I got to be uh, careful. In October of 19, October 19th of 2020, Politico published a list of 51 named and a total of 60, so nine unnamed, former intelligence professionals. I'll list a few. And a lot of them were former CIA. John Brennan, Jim Clapper, Mike Hayden. I'll stop there. You can go on the list yourself. And then I match it up with the numbers of the 39 individuals that requested the unmasking of a national security advisor to a president. 
And those names are very congruent. And that unmasking occurred immediately after the 2016 election. You follow me so far? Why is that the case? Are they providing cover for something? I argue absolutely. And I'm not going to mention this book, but you can guess this is a 650-page book that lists 459 crimes committed by a very senior executive branch member, maybe the most senior currently. So, and I'll leave this for the record. Additionally, the Federal Congress, the Oversight Committee, has also come to an agreement with what's in this report. And they're continuing to investigate. So, when Twitter, for example, says they made a mistake, right, because the FBI went ahead and said, you must censor this content and you must censor these people. And they do the same thing with Mark Zuckerberg over at Facebook. What do you do as a state to be able to, to somehow push back against this complete, I would argue, international manipulation we talked about, and then the federal executive branch, I argue at this point, has gotten off completely off the rails. One of the reasons why I retired is because the unconstitutional behavior of our current executive branch, absolutely disgusting. You're listening to Ivan Ranklin testifying before a joint hearing in Arizona this week. He is an expert on international uh, um, intelligence and the Constitution. He is an attorney. Let's take a listen. Continue. I cannot have any. I do not want to participate in it. I'm trying to come up with a solution within our constitutional framework to be able to push back against it. And that's why I'm gladly here to try and figure out ways to be able to push back against that. So, not only is the FBI doing that with the forced censorship online, which impacts elections, right? But also you have, aside from the digital censorship, I actually, some of you know this, in the audience that I communicated with, I tried to fly down here yesterday. And guess why I wasn't able to get here yesterday and I just walked, literally walked in the door. Because I'm articulating this, those up at the top levels of our executive branch don't like it. It's resonating. So not only did they cancel me personally from being able to co communicate these threats and try to mitigate these threats and risks to our constitutional order and the electoral system, they physically placed me on the secondary screening list to try and find something on me while I travel. I'm not the only one. I know there's other people out there. So what do we do as a society? Do we want that? Do we want basically the Chinese Communist Party model applied to our digital ecosystem and where we converse and then be able to be blocked physically from testifying before a joint session here? They did the same thing where I had to miss a, a, a hearing in New Hampshire. I don't want that, and that's why I'm here. So let me give you my assessment. 
I, and hopefully quite a few of we the people, which are the first three words of the Constitution, of the United States, assessed with the highest degree of confidence based on an extensive body of multidiscipline intelligence that Chinese and to a lesser degree Russian and Iranian intelligence services almost certainly infiltrated, gained influence over, which led to near or full control, and I'm not going to name names, I'll provide this for the record, of certain key players within our institutions, our most influential institutions, whether it be in the executive branch, whether it be big tech uh, incumbents, big media, and we have no mechanism to be able to identify and counter that as a society. Why? Because the FBI is responsible for that. And what is the FBI doing? They're focused on participating in that process. So that's why we need to come to a solution. What is that solution? Well, the FBI is not listed in our U.S. Constitution. The legislative body of a state is. So where most people think, oh, the FBI has so much power, they have nothing compared to you. Nothing. You collectively and then the whole joint session here. And this is where I want to transition real quick. How much time do I have? Five minutes. Five minutes. Perfect. I want to transition to the plenary power that you as a body have. I know many of you know this, but I want to make sure that everybody understands the precedent that the, uh, the U.S. constitutional framework has as it applies to resolving all these outside pressures, whether it's foreign or domestic, on the state of Arizona. So you're listening to Ivan Ranklin. This is about the intersection of the election process with foreign interference. And he's going to talk about the executive order in 2018, 13848, and how that kicks in with with the influence and outside interference of, of domestic and foreign actors against the U.S. But I want to explain what plenary power means, because I think a lot of times we don't understand it and we hear it often. Plenary power or authority is a complete and absolute power to take action on a particular issue with no limitations. It is derived from the Latin term plenus. So he's referring to the legislature in every state, not just Arizona, has plenary power. And that power was usurped using uh, executive orders from COVID and other means to take away their authority to run their own elections. Here we go. So, 1776, declaration. I call it United States Beta. 1781, 1.0 comes into place with Articles of Confederation. Granted, there is no federal government during that first period of our of our American history. Again, 13 colonies transitioned to 13 states. No federal government. It was not until nine states decided, three-quarters of the state's legislatures agreed and ratified this baby, the U.S. Constitution. What does that mean? That means the state legislatures allowed certain set of rules. So we're going to take a break right now for news and weather. When we come back, we'll pick up with this testimony in front of the joint legislature in Arizona about the interference of 
foreign and domestic bad actors in our recent elections. You're listening to The Jen Charlton Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Jen, and we are back with Ivan Ranklin in front of the Arizona Joint Hearing. And I want to make a quick comment about the 10th Amendment, because he's referring to the plenary power and where power and authority lives. And we've had Michael Peruca on, who was the candidate for attorney general here in Maryland, talking about this very thing. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. What does that mean? That means if they don't define in the Constitution what is the authority of the federal government, then therefore it goes to the states. The plenary authority means that this legislature has authority over the federal government on these elections, which was usurped during the COVID nightmare. Here you go. We're going to pick up with Ivan Ranklin. So this is not like an unclear term. This is so, it should be so clear and everybody sitting here needs to understand that you here folks sitting have complete authority on how to conduct federal elections, whether it be the House and Senate, U.S., whether it be the presidential electors. It comes down to political will and courage on how you want to make the frame for it. And I argue, based on what I just discussed briefly here, and I'd be happy to have a conversation further moving forward, what specific methods we need to take in order to mitigate the foreign risk and the risk from an overarching tyrannical federal government so that they do not meddle in the electoral system in Arizona and then obviously other states. So my my recommendations. Arizona must reassert their plenary authority, whether it be through a proclamation. I think there's some things that are currently moving forward with that. Uh, As a side note, it may be a distraction, but as part of that discussion, I recommend uh, a relook on the 17th Amendment, which is the 17th Amendment was when the power to decide who the U.S. senators are from a state, it rested with the state legislative body. Okay, And then in the 17th Amendment changed it to the people. Now, one argument is that if the electoral system is clean, I don't mind it being with the people. But there has to be a mechanism when there's so many shenanigans, as we've seen in the last several elections, there needs to be a serious discussion and debate on whether or not that should be adjusted based on certain criteria. And then... The, le- the legislature should consider creating a watchdog or counterintelligence capability uh, of its federal officers that are in the state. Bring them in to testify. I'm not sure how it occurred here, but I know that there was a significant assessment that was done in the Phoenix field office of the FBI in 2019. And it discussed um, a certain letter of the alphabet that was anathema to our order. And I'm going to leave it at that. I'm being vague. The other thing is there's a, a guy by the name of Elvis Chan that was, his name was released in the Twitter files. Please conclude your remarks. 10 seconds. Thank you. And so 
these federal officers, if they're not in D.C., they have a field office. There needs to be oversight and scrutiny and pushback so that they do not conduct what we just saw conducted over the last at least two years. With that, I'll take any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you. Our, our first uh, question is from Senator Borelli. So, again, you're listening to Ivan Ranklin. He is an expert on intelligence and the Constitution. He's an attorney. He was a Green Beret. He has served our country. He's an honorable man, and his testimony is earth-shattering and nothing less. We're going to go on to listening to Borelli ask a question about uh, about when you have equipment that is provided by, in this case, China, for either DOD purposes, they don't use it, and he refers to taking down the airplane if if it has China parts in it because it can't be trusted to protect us. And likewise, he uses the analogy to the election equipment. If the election equipment is indeed produced, manufactured, and designed by our enemy, the Chinese, why on earth would we use them here in U.S.? And in fact, we are. Here you go. So when the Cold Warrior uh, era timeframes in, during the Cold War, you know, the big threat was man. Mutually assured destruction. And once that Cold War was that, that aspect of mutually assured destruction was quelled because of, uh, Ronald Reagan and the wall coming down and stuff like that. And we know about this, this the shift, the change on the concept of warfare changed economically to med, mutually economic destruction. So that way, if all the components are not playing by, you know, playing ball with each other, then one of the principles, the other principles will, will close it down. It's, it's basically a big conglomerate. And so with your assessment of saying that Russia, China, and Iran, all the colluding, uh, coordinating, for example, Russia and, well, actually China wants to be the, the big economic dog in the park, um, that's what's kind of driving this, you know, some people call it the shadow government, some we call it the swamp, whatever you want to call it. But uh, globally, this is what we're, we're dealing with, correct? Is that what you a- say? Absolutely, if I may. So the reason being is that for China, they're trying to have international relations kind of theory 101 is essentially – as a nation, you first try to create sovereignty. Once you get your house in order, then you try to have influence regionally. And then after that, you want to have global hegemony. And we've, fortunately, over the course of my lifetime, I would argue up until literally January of 21, we were in that pole position as the global leader. In di- well, up until a few years before that, in diplomacy and in information reach throughout the globe, military capability and economics. That has shifted over the last several years. Diplomatically, China has more embassies and consulates throughout the world than than the United States. So if that's a key indicator, which it is for me, and because they're also a member on the Permanent Security Council, I think the tiebreak goes at this point to China. And I hate to say that because like yourself, Senator Borelli, we serve. Same thing with you, Senator Rogers. And so it pains me to say that. But this is exactly what I think is going on. And then information landscape there really are no privacy laws in China, and they also have 1.4 billion sensors, right? Whoever has one of these or a phone, 
That's a sensor and all these different devices. So they feed the big data machine and then it helps to adjust and increase the capability of their AI systems to move towards from just what we call narrow AI, narrow artificial intelligence, to artificial general intelligence where they will have a sentient system that can outperform at a minimum any human in any endeavor and probably humanity in the collective. And so that's what we're facing. It's a national security threat. And so when you have systems, electoral systems, on any machinery, the risk is so great. It's astronomical because you can do it at scale with literally a flip of the switch, especially when you have more supercomputing power, when you have the AI capability. And so I'm not sure we're in a position to counter it in the digital fight at this point. Especially with our national security apparatus, that is literally, I, I laid out, they're working in some instances against the constitutional order. So you're listening to Ivan Ranklin. We'll be continuing with this conversation in just a moment. Computers, stuff like that. Um, I mean, DOD would not allow a motherboard manufactured in China. Uh, to have a internal mini PCI slot for wireless card and password jumper that allows for the removal of reset bio passwords. Well, Madam Chair, to that, to that point, the um, point I'm trying to make here is I have an, a, an appendix uh, four from sworn affidavits have been filed in several uh, state courts. Uh, country of manufacture or origin of voting uh, voting system components. It's a list of all this, uh, all this stuff. Um, like I said, I mentioned that motherboard um, uh, is the PRC. Wouldn't that be the People's Republic of China? Absolutely. I've seen that document that you're referring to, Senator yeah, Borelli. Let me see. Uh, we have I a think component. it's uh, retired Colonel Sean Smith, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. That yes. Uh, gave that uh, testimony. Got uh, this is. I'm not going to say the name of the company, but. Uh, these things were final assembly in the People's Republic of China, manufacturing public Republic of China. Um, this is that's one voting system, and then I'm seeing another voting system. Uh, all the stuff made in China, People's Republic of China. Here's another voting system that we use in Arizona. Same thing, and none of these com these components. Uh, if it's not, if they, we can't use it in DoD standards for our own aircraft. We shouldn't be, or even our own banking system is can be suspect on that. But um, here's the motherboard. May, may, this is all these pieces. We've heard testimony from before from a, a computer experts as a microchip that you wouldn't even notice if it's already pre can you know manufactured to do a certain thing. We will never see it any kind of manipulation through the system. So would you say it's a fair assessment that we should not be using? Anything uh, made from a country that wants to do us harm should be used in our electronic or our voting system? Not to be disrespectful, but it is, it is a rhetorical question, sir, in the sense that absolutely not. We're not. We do not need to be using that. Every state needs to have a policy that essentially lists and incorporates some of this information. These are the countries that the state of Arizona is not going to allow supply chains within the state of Arizona. Obviously, interstate commerce is a, is a function of the federal government, mm -hmm. but when it comes to within-state activity, 
I think the legislature has full authority to say, you know what, we're not going to have anything from the following state and non-state actors in terms of supply chain. Well, thank you, Madam Chair. So I might, might also point out, I mean, even uh, Joe Biden agrees in his Build Back Better plan, he said, made in America. We need to be, have components made in America. I think we should do that for our electronic system, voting systems. I would agree. Yes, sir. Uh, Colonel Raikland, um, I have... I have a bill like that, just saying. Very nice, Madam Chairwoman. But my question to you, Colonel Raikland. Yeah, I think so. There is speculation out there that COVID, as a tool of asymmetric warfare, succeeded far beyond the CCP's wildest dreams. Would you speak to that? That's a big question. How much time do I have? <laughs> Three minutes. <laughs> Three minutes. Okay. So where do I start with this one? Uh, yeah. So, again, if you're, you're seeking global dominance, and, for example, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you're producing something uh, which also includes bio, bio warfare capability, uh, one of the hypotheses that I mentioned earlier I think at least one of the analysts even ventured to say that it may have been an intentional kind of release. I get it. It's only one analyst, so you can't put all credibility on it. But that's still a information gap that we need to dig into further to determine whether that occurred or not. I think more and more evidence in the collective, at least contextually, would lead – it leads me in that direction. Whereas initially you were called a – whatever name in the book, as the you know, worst person in the history of humanity for thinking that. I think nowadays with the Twitter files release, and I believe that the Fauci files will be releasing soon. I think they were supposed to have already been released. We're going to see, I would gather, we're going to see a criminal, a crime scene never before that we've witnessed in our lifetime that will exactly point us in that direction. A crime scene in terms of collusion of, with an enemy? Yes, as it applies to, I, I, I find it hard for myself to label it as what most people call COVID-19. I prefer the term the CCP-19 because it was released in 2019. And I think as more evidence comes out, I believe more people will come to the same conclusion as myself. This is Jan. We're listening to the Arizona testimony, and he is now inferring the intersection between the COVID-19 pandemic, the possible intentional release of it, and its influence over and into our election process. Here you go. And, what, and spend 60 seconds on this, how it impacted our elections. So. In your view. It absolutely disrupted the entire legislative plenary authority that was outlined in the Constitution. So when non-legislative actors, such as a secretary of state, a county clerk, a county uh, 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 municipal precinct, county, secretary of state, and even, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, but as it, apply, as it applies to Arizona, when the election is conducted not in the manner in which this body prescribed procedurally that is an illegally conducted election. And I spent quite a bit of time 
Uh, I even wrote a memorandum about this that happened to be re, uh, retweeted by a consequential figure in our country's <laughs> <laughs> political landscape. Uh, it saw the light of day everywhere where essentially when a state does not, when non-legislative actors conduct the election outside of that election law, I argue that it needs to be corrected. And that's for you folks to decide on how that needs to be corrected, whether it's forward-leaning or consequence creation. Uh, I have my ideas, but my ideas are probably a little bit too bold, a little bit too aggressive, considering I am a lawyer and a former Green Beret. And I'm saying that bold in terms of in a law-offensive manner. Thank you. Thank you. Madam Chair. Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Madam yes. Chair. Colonel, Sir. thank you for being here today, and thank you for your service to our country. Um, I have two questions for you. Um, that book that you have there, you said that lists crimes. Is that correct? That has been committed? So, If you could explain what in, that book In the American legal jurisprudence, a crime is not committed until a court decides that it is a crime. However, as citizens, when you see somebody being murdered in front of you, you can pretty much call it for yourself because you were a witness to it. But that crime occurred. It's not a juridical conclusion. But this is essentially showcases 459 crimes alleged with the statute. Who committed it? I'll give you a kind of like the framework. When did it occur? Where? Who committed it? And what statute was violated? And then it goes into the evidence to support that factual evidence. Follow up, Madam, Madam, Go ahead. Chair. Madam Chair, Colonel. Uh, has information like that been given to attorney generals, state attorney generals? <laughs> so you raise a good point because and when you have say a. just say Madam Chair and then Representative oh. Smith. Go ahead. Madam Chair? Representative Smith. Representative and then, Smith. And then answer. That way it's on record. Go ahead. My apologies. Representative Smith. Again, when you have a federal captured, you know, when our executive branch, DOJ, system is essentially captured, then the only mechanism really to enforce these is going to be through a state attorney general or a county sheriff that has the courage to make sure that there are consequences for these bad actors. But when that bad actor can easily call that nefarious actor from the federal government to protect them, you have to have bold attorneys general that are willing to take the heat for it. And you have to have a educated class of citizenry that will provide the backing to whether it be a legislative action or attorney general to create consequences. Another unconventional way that I think you can create consequences to make sure that lawful behavior is promoted and lawless behavior is you know, tampered down is that each state has a sergeant at arms whether it be on the House side, the Senate side. So when you call your individuals in to testify that you're providing oversight over, I know it's bold and I know it's aggressive, but you need to seriously consider on whether or not that law enforcement official can actually do a detention in the Capitol grounds. I know that hasn't really been done in the past, but we're reaching a point where the lawlessness is so rampant, we have to come up with legal constitutional solutions to be able to temper it. Thank you. Um, yes, sir. Madam Chair, Mr. Ranklin, 
Uh, here in Arizona, our legal structure is a little bit different than most of the other states um, that you might be used to, um, because we have been run by by uh, Republicans for such a long time. We've we've developed some cool tools. Um, <laughs> so, although although of course the executive branch has uh, the authority to prosecute crimes, and unfortunately is, is in the wrong hands at the moment, uh, along with the county attorneys, by the way, I should add. Um, in Arizona, every citizen has the authority to bring a civil right of action uh, for violations of Arizona election law. So that doesn't perhaps deliver justice. In your estimation, are there other ways in which this tool could be used that we're not using it now? So, Madam Chairwoman, Representative Coladin, did I get it right? Yes. Okay. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna take a break right now and from this. I want to take us to the end of this hearing. There's another twenty minutes or so, but I think it's important for you to hear the end because it's incredibly compelling. Why is this man doing this? I mean, he served our country. He's somebody who has honor and authority and respect, and he's he's put it all on the line, as many of us frankly have. And uh and it's worth hearing from him the why he does this. So I'm taking us to the end. There is more to this. We will put the link on the uh, podcast. So be sure to listen to it in it in its entirety when you have an opportunity, because it's really worth uh, hearing it twice. I've listened to it three times and each time I get more out of it. So here you go. Tailored. And they're going to try to use language that still falls within stare decisis precedence to limit folks to push for going back. So my final question then, unless another colleague has But I one. disagree with that. Understood. <laughs> you as Mr. Raikland. Uh, in summation then, you would say that we as the state legislature have the plenary power and what we have now is what we will have in the future and don't hope for anything more expansive based on upcoming um, court cases. The the only, Madam Chairwoman, the only limitation that I could possibly give credence to that the opposing side would argue is that when you have set forth rules already in place by a legislative body on how to conduct an election, and then later on it's changed, there's going to be this interaction of potential 14th Amendment. So amendments that came about after the authority granted in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, which is every amendment, understood that may have a superseding argument because of the last-in-time doctrine, where if there's a conflict, a court may decide, and ultimately the Supreme Court may decide, if there's a perceived, argued 14th Amendment violation on somebody's ability to vote, whether it's citizenry, because that's the decision that the legislature decided, uh, that's a hypothetical question that I think that argument would probably be the strongest, <clears throat> and then the courts would have to litigate. We'd have to litigate that in court. But when you're on offense, you don't wait for a court to decide. You act and let the court decide. Understood. So that's my stance always. Thank you, Madam and Chair. it's been most enlightening. Any other questions? I have one question. Champ. Thank Senator, ma'am. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. Colonel. It's my understanding that you're spending your own time and your own resources investigating and educating. Why? 
Loves this <laughs> Madam Chairwoman, Senator Champ. Uh, so it sounds cliche, but at the end of the day, so my, my parents fled the Soviet Union in the 70s from communism. This one, this one gets emotional. Okay. I see it coming here. Not on my watch. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much you for very your much. testimony, Mr. Ranklin. Listen, everybody, share this podcast to friends and family and colleagues so that the information can get out there because we're covering information that may not be available in your mainstream media. So go to WFMD.com and listen to our podcast and share it and rate us. Give us a five star. Have a great week.